Hey guys, before we get started, I want to let you guys know that we have a new podcast up and it's called The Maze. It is about Westworld. We're going to be covering all of the season two episodes of Westworld, which start this Sunday. Check out the podcast with the link in the description or check it out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And we've already got one episode up. So join us as we question the nature of our reality. And now on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecrack's movie podcast. Show me the meaning, I'm Tom Cruise! (laughs) (laughs) My name is Jared, and we're joined here with a full house here. We've got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And Austin. Hello. And returning again is Claire. Howdy. And for the first time, we have the mysterious co-founder of Wisecrack, Jacob. How's it going, man? Very good, Nice to finally meet you. Yeah, I'm usually on the comments in the background, so now I'm uh, on (laughs) camera today. man behind the curtain. That's right. In in the podcast. Good to have you here. Today, we are covering the 1999 film directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, I'm personally very excited to be talking about this movie, but as always, let's get first impressions. What's it like the first time you watched it and what's it like revisiting it? Let's start with Austin this time. Um, So for some reason, I have like a really vivid memory of watching the trailer of this as a teenager in my kitchen with my mom and my mom thinking that this looked really amazing. And so that's like the first impression that I actually have of the film. And I didn't see it until... A few years later, because I was like, what, 15 or something when it was being advertised. So I uh, I have th- th- that's kind of the way that I actually still think of my first impression of the movie, if that makes sense. It's almost like when people think about Eyes Wide when they talk about Eyes Wide Shut, that's how I remember it. I remember being with my mom and my mom talking about how beautiful Nicole Kidman is and how weird Tom Cruise is and how like they're such a <laughs> mismatched couple. And but my mom was like, oh, but that movie looks really scintillating kind of thing. Um, so the first time I saw it, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I don't think I was as, um, like intellectually refined as maybe I've become over the years with studying philosophy and in particular studying Freud and Lacan, which this film is not even pretending to hint at because it's based off of a novel that is intentionally Freudian by a guy who was one of Freud's friends. So it's extremely rich with psychoanalytic principles and ideas and things like that. So from that first moment that was rather unformed to now, um, it's just been a huge, interesting experience to see my enjoyment and participation in this film change and morph and grow. And and I fucking love this movie. Um, there are a couple elements that I think are a bit cheesy and wanky, but I think they actually fit. Like everyone I know likes to make fun of the Nicole Kidman pot scene as being a bit over the top, but I think it actually really fits with some of the themes that are being explored. So I, I think there's a really interesting movie and and I enjoy it. And I wish Tom Cruise did more of this rather than trying to be a... 50-something-year-old action star, even though American Made was okay. All right. Let's move on to Ryan. (laughs) Well, unlike Austin, my first impression of this movie has nothing to do with my mom. It has, it was, I vividly remember. How Freudian is that, by the way, too? (laughs) Yeah, so Freudian, right. I I saw it with my mom, maybe. 14, and I just remember it had come out, and, you know, there had been so much commotion about this movie and about the crazy orgy scene, and so I remember seeing the taped copy of it in my dad's office and being like, oh, shit, when the weekend came and me and my friends uh, were hanging out, it's like, all right, hey, let's go see that orgy scene in that new Tom Cruise movie. You know, so that we like are fast forwarding it for a fucking hour and a half. Yeah, of boring stuff. It's like Moby Dick, like skip all the boring parts. Right? Yeah. And then the orgy scene happens and it's like, oh man, this is kind of cool. You know, but it's nothing really. It's like, you know, blurry kind of masked 
totally non-sexy orgy happening. Uh, as he's, can't, yeah, who, they can't do anything through those masks. While he's doing the <laughs> Gus Van Sant shot of just Tom Cruise's back walking through it, you know. And so I remember being like, all right, well, is that it? Let's see the rest. And then fast forwarding another hour and then being like, all right, well. That's the movie. So that was my first impression was just going through everything except the orgy. But then... I became, like Austin said, more intellectually refined over the years. I went to film school and stuff. (laughs) I was like, whoa, there's more to this. And then I remember revisiting it and being like, wow, this is actually way better than the kind of train wreck everyone makes it out to be. Because, you know, another big part of the movie was, you know, he died six days after he gave it to the studio. And then they recut it kind of. So it's not really even his total final cut. And stuff, and then they pare down the orgy a lot. Do which, we have you know, his final fuck cut? Them. Oh, I didn't know any of that. No, I think that's a myth. I think that the, that's the, not a myth. That that the studio recut it after he died. I think. Well, is they, I mean, it well, depends what you mean by recut. They definitely did some additional editing. Yeah, think about it. You put you give your first cut a Stanley Kubrick first cut is like probably three and a half Seven hours. <laughs> well, I thought it was <laughs> a know? final cut. I don't no. know. I mean. We'll get into that. We'll, we'll, we'll never yeah, know. Yeah. But like, I think what he deli- never. I think I think it's he delivered a cut. No, but like, there's a, the the his daughter has said that no, he was very very proud of that final cut or the cut that exists, and that was his vision. I mean, okay, that's, that's what his daughter I, I mean, says. I, I, that probably makes sense. It's Sally Kubrick. He's probably his like, daughter. Well, I have one cut. What do you mean a rough just cut? Saying. <laughs> she <laughs> is. I did not know that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, but anyway, apparently uh, he said that when he handed it, when he saw the preview screening, he said that this is his best film that he's ever made. Well, yeah, I was saying on 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 YouTube. That someone they took out like 36 minutes of his cut. We'll, we'll see. I, I don't know. I would highly disagree with Stanley Kubrick that this is his Stanley Kubrick's oddball. best movie. But <laughs> anyway, overall, I uh, think there's a lot to it. It does not need to be this fucking long. It's so long. You know, it's like me and me and Jared have <laughs> this whole discussion with Barry Lyndon because he like gets off on how long it is. Like every second that they just show Barry Lyndon's face in a candlelight, he's just like yes, and I'm like no. I feel like the way that we you feel about Boogie Nights, like don't. Remember Remove a frame. I think oh, it's yeah. great. Well, no, yeah. Yeah, this one, Boogie I Nights. Think... That, that don't remove a frame. Every single scene matters. Every single moment matters. This I would, I would argue... say that there's so much of him just sitting there thinking about about her fucking that sailor, you know, and like like. <laughs> but all, we're gonna like... get into the detail of that. Yeah, scene. All right, all right. We gotta get we gotta get through this, Jacob. What do you think? I, I I really do not remember my first time watching the movie at all. I mean, I was probably younger. I was much more titillated by all of it, like the sex scenes, the sex as a theme, uh, the characters, seeing Nicole Kidman naked, seeing. <laughs> All these people was like, wow, I probably, I remember being much more excited about it. And now when I watch it, I just look at it. It's like high art. Like, it's just so good. And every time I watch it, I just find more and more and more and more. I was saying it's like a novel. Like every time you read it or watch it, it's just like, wow. It's so much great, great okay. choices. Uh, so I I love it. I saw it last night and loved it more than ever. And it's just... Hey, I love the movie. Yeah, it's yeah. great. I, I, yeah, Usually sorry, Jacob yeah. and I have an hour-long meeting every morning where we talk about business stuff. But this morning, all we did was talk about how much how <laughs> awesome this movie is. So I was like, all right, well, we got to bring Jacob on. But yeah, like, and the narrative of the, like, all the, all of the, the lore behind the movie, it getting made, it being the most powerful and sexy couple in the world at the time, the 400 days of shooting, all of that lore makes the whole thing like that much more exciting to like dissect, analyze, and enjoy. So yeah, I just, I freaking love it. All right, let's move on to Claire. 
when I read about the way that he made the film, where he basically just held Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise hostage in London for 400 <laughs> days and made Tom Cruise do 95 different takes of walking into a room until everyone was so exhausted that they just like weren't even humans. And that's his, you know, directing method. I was like, oh, this movie makes so much more sense now. Everyone is just like exhausted. Like, exhausted. Everyone's so exhausted. They don't even like know how to act. This totally makes sense. Um, so my first time seeing the movie was last night at 7 p.m. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought you said you had seen it before. Yeah, I thought I had. Turns out when I started watching the movie, because uh, Jared, Jared asked me like, hey, have you seen Eyes Wide Shut? And I was like, yeah, a long time ago, but I'd watch it again. Uh, turns out when I started watching the movie, I found the point about seven minutes in, in which I'd originally turned off the movie. So I had previously seen the first seven minutes of the movie. Um, sorry, Jared. I thought I was telling you the truth. Oh, no, it, I, I don't mind. But Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that I had seen the movie before, um, but I had started watching the movie before. Yeah. I, so Did I, you like I don't, it? I don't have a comparison to make between the first. I guess I do and that I didn't turn it off this time, um, but <laughs> I didn't see enough of it the first time to really be able to make a distinction like that. I might be the only person on this podcast who has not gone to film school. Uh, I like watching it. I understood how much art there was in it. I was like, okay, follow the rainbow, rainbow like clothing and costumes. I see you like looking at fantasy. I get you, I get you. But I, it was really hard to reconcile that with like just how boring so much of it was. Yeah. <laughs> That's like Ryan, like, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Sarah. Yeah. 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 You know, sometimes there is no more profound criticism than it's just boring. And I, I'm not being facetious. Like I, at the end of the day, when I think about The Last yeah. Jedi, there's nothing more profound I can say than it's boring. Yeah, that's the worst <laughs> sin you could possibly make I agree. In, as, a, as a movie. You I thought agree. The Last Jedi was boring, but you didn't think Eyes Wide Shut was boring? Yeah. I saw Matt Barney's six-hour film, The River of Fundament movie, and that that is real boring. I mean, but it's beautiful. Yeah, because we should boat. make a distinction well, between boring and slow, though. Well, yeah, you know? yeah I mean, so, so for the yeah, first movie, I think. like Jean Delmont or something like that by Chantal Ackerman, where it's, you know, three and a half hours of a domestic woman, you know, cleaning dishes and preparing dinner and going through this rote routine. And it's intentionally, quote unquote, boring because it's kind of subverting what we understand as being, you know, a woman on screen. It's subverting what we understand as uh, storytelling, et cetera, et cetera. Or like Satan Tango by, um, forgot his name right now. Or but any Michelle Haneke movie. Bar, yeah. Uh, Bellatar. Um, yeah, or, or, yeah, yeah, Haneke's films. I mean, I think there's something to say about actually the uh, the importance of slow cinema. Um, sometimes, sometimes. And I think Kubrick, that's why he lingers in Barry Lyndon over someone's face. And that's why he lingers over Tom Cruise's face. And that's why you get Sidney Pollack answering when, or, or not, not answering when Tom Cruise is talking or vice versa. And you get these interesting cutaways. And um, I think there's something really interesting. I actually think most filmmakers, you know, we talk about like Death of God and stuff or like Death of the Author. I actually think that Stanley Kubrick is intentionally aware of of so many of the philosophical themes that we're probably going to talk about in this cast. Yeah, I agree. And that's what makes him a really special filmmaker is that uh, it's not often that you really have this enigmatic genius auteur who like puts more thought into the movies than most anyone else. So how about your impressions? Okay, so this movie is actually very special to me. I remember seeing it in high school and I was totally captured and similar to you, I was very titillated. It really affected me like in a very psychosexual manner. Like I remember the first time I saw it in a very basic thing, I just, at the end of the movie, I was like, oh my God, like, 
this really reaffirms to me, like, I guess a very, what I now later consider to be a very Freudian disposition is that, wow, yeah, everything is about status and sex. Like, I totally see and connect with that. Like, I can see that reality in the universe. But another thing, um, this actually, this movie was uh, kind of a foundational moment for me because it was one of the movies that really, it, it made me want to learn how to read cinema. So I actually have a book here. I'm going to be drawing a lot from this book and some of the um, discussion points that we bring up. This is a book I bought in high school. Uh, people sometimes email us and ask, like, you know, uh, how did you guys learn how to read cinema? Do you have any recommendations? If you're a Kubrick fan and you want to learn more about, uh, you know, reading cinema in like any kind of traditional way that's more than just kind of fan theories, I, d I definitely recommend this book. It's called Stanley Kubrick, A Narrative and Stylistic Analysis by Mario Falsetto. Uh, this is the second edition. I'm sure there's uh, better editions out now. Um, this was uh, a really just watching Kubrick movies and going through this book uh, was a really, I mean, it's part of the reason why I do what I do now. I mean, it was, uh, it's just such a rich, interesting movie that, you know, really affected me on kind of a subconscious level. Um, and I was just, I immediately read the Arthur Schnitzler, or Arthur Schnitzer movie. Schnitzel? Yeah, uh, <laughs> Trom, Trom Novelle. I immediately... I immediately read that. I immediately read this book. It just, this movie, touched, it, I wouldn't say it touched me, but it inspired me so much that I just had to devour all the information I could about how Kubrick constructs his movies, what it does it mean, how can cinema kind of, how is it that, that cinema was able to inspire me to this extent? Mm -hmm. um, one other thing I want to mention, some of the other points I'm going to bring up, um, there's a really great essay called Introducing Sociology by Tim Kreider. I don't know if you guys have read that one, but it's also um, another essay that I wrote on, or I'm sorry, that I read on online years ago when I was in high school, and it also very much informed uh, the way that I uh, read cinema and stuff like that. So um, there's, I, I've done a lot of research about this movie in the years, so I wanted to shout that out because I might be stealing other people's ideas here. So that's everybody. So let's go into a recap. This is going to be super quick because there's so much to talk about. So Dr. Bill and Alice Harford live a seemingly perfect life. They're beautiful, successful, and well-established in the world of the New York elite. One night, Alice confesses to Bill that one summer she saw a naval officer and fantasized about leaving her comfortable life with Bill just for one night with him. Bill's anger propels him on a dreamlike sexual odyssey through New York, where he witnesses an admission of love from one of his clients, a young girl in a costume shop become a prostitute, a masked orgy in a palatial mansion, and the death of a different prostitute. Bill experiences a series of threats when he inquires further about the nature of the orgy and eventually confesses everything to Alice. Grateful to have survived the debacle, the two vow to do one last thing as soon as possible. Fuck. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. <laughs> um, so many things to talk about here. I'd like to start the conversation off just talking about dreams. Once again, it's based on a book called Traumnovelle, which basically in German uh, translates to Dream Story uh, by Arthur Schnitzler. I read that. Yeah, I read that in high school too. So I must have watched the film around that time. Yeah. And um, so there are a couple things that I have written down of ways that it evokes this kind of dream-like setting. But I, I want to uh, read a quote from Falsetto here. He says, in Eyes Wide Shut, we never know what to believe, and the status of the narrative events remain unclear throughout the film. Truth and fiction, objectivity and subjectivity, and the public and private are intermingled to such a degree that the viewer remains in a state of constant uncertainty. Nothing in this film can be taken at face value. No final interpretation can be given. Um, so I, I think that 
you know, we, there are so many questions, open-ended questions in this movie. Why is the mask on the uh, the pillow oh. at the end? Uh, what exactly is dream? What is reality? I think similar to the Inception podcast, there is something about this movie in which there are things that happen in the movie that we ask ourselves, well, is that just uh, some sort of, is that supposed to indicate something plot-wise or is that just dramatic technique to make it feel more like a dream? Now, part of this dream thing is discussion. I think this film has a lot to say about desire. And so I want to throw it to Austin now because I'm sure this is where you want to bring in the Freud and Lacan stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, fuck, there's so much to get into. But I would say that the bit in particular with the mask at the end, I think what that is, that's the culmination of her sort of stealing his fantasy, right? So the sort of inciting event, if there is a, a typical inciting event in this film, is her talking with Tom Cruise while they're stoned about her fantasizing about this naval officer. And the interesting way that it's set up is that he is what Lacan would call like the master to know, right? He's the one who kind of knows everything. He has everything quote unquote under control. Uh, for Lacan, he sometimes gets criticized by feminist scholars, even though there have been feminist scholars that have then brought uh, or taken up Lacan and tried to reverse this. But the reason they would do that is because for Lacan, only the man is uh, fully articulated into the symbolic order of things, whereas the woman is only understood as um, being like able to desire to desire, not actually having desire. And it has to do with like the Freudian, uh, like doesn't have the penis and stuff like that, right? So women are only like a, a they have secondary status, if you will, um, in, in some of readings of Lacan. Um, but what this film does is it kind of reverses that. And it actually gives the power to Nicole Kidman because what happens is, is she She's the one who has the real fantasy. She's the one that really has the desire, but Tom Cruise doesn't think that she's able to because he's the man and he understands that men are the ones that have desire. And that's what he says, right? Like, and right. she's like, oh, we all know what men are like. like. We all know what men are like. Yeah, exactly. I, all men are like this. They're the ones that want to fuck. But women, you guys don't want to. You're just objects of desire. And so she then, in this humiliating outburst of over-the-top acting and laughter, which actually I think really works <laughs> to serve like, the scene. I've I've like, gone back and forth on, I've waffled on that. Like, the acting is great. It's horrible. It's yeah, great. Me it's too. horrible. Me too. Last night I was like, oh, it's perfect. I, I think so too. <laughs> I'm firmly in the camp of hell yeah, Nicole Kidman. She did a great Oscar job on that. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but anyway, yeah, keep, sorry, going. keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, and I think regardless, I think it fits for the scene and it fits for the concept that are sort of being expressed or that are on display. And the idea is, is that she's shattering his ignorance, that he kind of knows all, that he's he's covering over um, the potential for there being difference, right? Because he's got it all figured out. And so she just uh, creates a traumatic moment by telling her him about this fantasy that she's had. So now then... He, there's like a reversal of power. No longer is he overpowering her in this duality, but she has now taken the power by letting him know that, no, actually, I desire. And then he becomes the one who is only capable to desire to desire because all of his fantasizing, all of his exploration is all mediated through his uh, repetition of him uh, fantasizing about her fantasy. So he can only fantasize to fantasize. He can't actually fantasize, which is why all of his sexual experience is ultimately fall. And so the very end, the very end with the mask, or not the very end, we'll get there, but the mask, the reason that's so important is because that's her basically taking all of his fantasy into her kind of world 
Um, and I think that's what's so kind of profound about that moment. That's why he breaks down because he realizes that he's been the obsessive trying to control the trauma rather than dealing with the trauma because that's what the obsessive does. The hysteric uh, lives a lie, but it's based on a truth of a trauma. They just can't accept the trauma or admit it, but at least they're symptomatically um, living the, the lie by kind of going quote unquote mad. Whereas the obsessive is the one that can't even accept the trauma. So they have to perpetually reactionary defer or repress any sort of encounter with the trauma. And so that's what he does throughout this whole thing. Austin, what did you think of Nicole Kidman literally performing hysteria? Um, do, I mean, I guess, do, do you all want to go back to the scene later? But I figure while we're talking about the hysteric, um, I couldn't stop thinking about that as she's doing the part of that speech where she's just like laughing uncontrollably and yeah. like stomping and like tearing at herself. Like she's performing hysteria in this very unmistakable way. Um, so uh, what did you, what do you think about that in regards to your, your analysis? I think that would fit right into it because she's the one who is, she's she's living the truth of the trauma of the experience. Because the trauma is that she, at that moment, when she was fantasizing about this naval officer, as much as she said that she had never really what been more in love with Tom Cruise, at the same time, she was willing to give it all up just to be taken in that moment, which is jouissance, right? That's the pleasure that can destroy, that is like uh, that is like a beckoning with the real, a full encounter with the real, the, the pleasure that exceeds all possible um, symbolization um, because it is so excessive. She's going to give it all up. But then, of course, she doesn't because that destroys you when you do that. And she didn't want to destroy herself. But that's why she kind of goes down that path of, of hysteria, because she's actually being true to the trauma of the fantasy. Uh, I was going to talk about how, so you mentioned repetition, and I kind of want to bridge what you're talking about in terms of desire and how uh, his desire to desire is uh, emphasized through repetition. But I also think that that repetition is also within a lot of the form. There's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of doubling. And not only do I think that that speaks to the point that you're making, but I also think that it speaks to the overall dreamscape of the movie in which there are things that are repeated in a very illogical way that would make us constantly cast out as to whether what we're seeing is reality or if it's some sort of dreamscape. So um, for repetition, there's like, so Mrs. Nathanson who confesses her love to Tom Cruise and says, I hope even if I can just spend one night with you, that is kind of a rep repetition or a parallel of the naval officer story that Nicole Kidman tells. He's constantly saying, I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor. Uh, I think there's a sociological element to that that we'll get to later. Uh, during the point where, so Tom Cruise is in that cafe where he's reading the newspaper and he sees that the ex-beauty queen has died in a drug overdose, you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. yeah. The newspaper very clearly has certain phrases repeated. Like the sentence, the sentence, and, 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 and you would think like, oh, you're just zooming in too much. It's pretty clear. Like the, the lens is uh, pretty macro and you can read it pretty clearly. I mean, this is not as... I know, didn't pause it. I didn't pause it, but I just kind of read what I could read as quickly as possible thinking there's not a lot to read into it. But what, what, what kind of phrases? Just like the narrative. It's like, you know, she, uh, the door was locked and the police could not get in. As the police cannot get in, the door was locked or something <laughs> like that. There's also the thing that uh, Claire mentioned earlier earlier about how uh, the two European women who are trying to sleep with Tom Cruise say, we're going where the rainbow ends, and then the story has the rainbow. But there's also um, a lot of uh, interesting doubling. So we have Sandor Sazvos, the Hungarian, and, Mil <laughs> and, and, and Milic, the Eastern European. We have... Um, I got goosebumps over how much he creeped me out. <laughs> <laughs> another very another very dreamlike doubling thing is that Mrs. Nathanson's boyfriend, Carl, looks so much like Tom Cruise. 
Her boyfriend, Carl. Greg, oh, Greg from Dharma oh, and Greg. Beyonce? Oh, is it Greg? I thought it was Carl. No, no, it's Greg from Dharma and Greg. Did you ever watch that? <laughs> the show? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> they look so much They look so much alike. Now, you know, one could interpret that as, well, she's so obsessed with Tom Cruise's character that she finds a fiance that looks exactly like him. But I also think that this speaks to the dream element of it. Well, that I think that there's too, some... because all the women that Tom Cruise has interactions with are all sort of copies of Nicole Kidman. Yes, right? yes, they're all redheads. They're all, and they're all I, tall I, I, and slender and uh, light-haired and they they all kind of have um, defined features. So there's also something interesting right. about that as well. Yeah. I have a general question about this. When you say that it contributes to the, the being like a dreamscape, what does that mean to you? Like, like, are you saying that the movie is a dream? Half of the movie, what is, is not a dream? Or I'm you... saying that the movie is deliberately constructed in a way in which uh, there are certain... That it feels certain, like a dream? Yes, that it feels like a dream, not only in the very soft lighting, but in the fact that things happen that are seemingly illogical or that are seemingly like so hypersexualized as to not even be believable. And I guess why would that matter? Or I guess well, why, I think he's, why he's trying to, I think he's trying to construct the dream feeling from every, like with every tool in his box, right? Like that's, there that's could be, what the movie is about. The movie is about uh, a, a kind of psychosexual dream. And well, just constructing that dream feeling because there's the production design, again, recreating New York City streets on a set. The whole thing feels familiar, yet something is off. Yeah, and you keep the, the, feeling the scene, off the scene, all the time. The scene where the guy is following him and we hear the Ligeti music, at, there's no way that there would be an empty street like that in New York well, where right. one I guy mean, is following it, it, him. It, 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 it's not logical. It's a style. Yeah, it's, I think style of is course a it's a style. Right, but but I guess is that, are you saying the style is the point of the movie? Like It's a point. Like, I think it's a big yeah. I think a big part of it is can you construct and capture that that essence of dreamlike. Well, to me, the the, 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 the movie is about relationships and gender roles and kind well. of and class and and those kind of things. And yeah, it kind of feels like a dream. There are the and to me, I'd I'd call it more symbolism. I don't I can't exactly tell you what the symbolism is. But, you know, just the fact that it you know the rainbow and stuff is having. I I, I don't think that he's trying to say like. This is this is a dream. This is what like 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 because I because I don't see what, I don't see no, what dreams I, I have to I completely, do, I don't see what I, dreams have to do with anything. The book that it's based off is called Dream Novel. Well, right, that's so, the so, only so, thing and, that and, I and I don't the, know at, why. At the, at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the movie, the, the the final discussion between Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, they say, you know, we're very lucky to have gotten out of it, whether it was a dream or whether it was real. Yeah, because yeah, because he says something, right? right? She says, uh, you know, they're talking about forever, and she says, you know, I don't want to think that like one day or even an entire life is the entirety of truth. And then he says something, and I can't remember what it is, but it's something like, uh, or, or or that a dream. What is it? It's something about a dream. I mean, it's a very, yeah. He says something about a dream, and I think that I think yeah, like, like, like desire and our sexual desire is so embedded in our unconscious, and I think that part of this movie is trying to awaken or shine a light on these very complex nature of desire that cannot be quelled by a life of. Perfection. There will people will always desire more, and that desire will haunt our subconscious. And this is like a a physical exploration of that's that. Right. I think that's right. It's all about like kind of the the psychosexual desire and unlocking what happens in dreams when you're when your guard is down and you let your mind kind of wander. Another when you're sleeping when you're sleeping. But but whether or not the movie or the narrative is a dream or not, I don't think that's relevant at all. I don't think he's trying to define that part. But just the feeling, right? Like, well, it's like yeah. in, it's like in The Shining. There is no logic of what happens in The Shining. There's well, no the Shining logic involves supernatural ghosts and stuff so that makes more sense you know no it doesn't i mean like there's no even supernatural ghosts i mean there's no evidence that it's ghosts and not a demon spirit or an indian burial ground it's vague it's deliberately vague and that's right. and, and the line between reality and dream here is similarly vague and that's been my maturity just growing up and watching movies over time i used to try to decode confusing things all the time and then i realized like it with any story whether yes. it be a novel or film it's like that's the point is is it for it's it? much more about evoking a feeling and capturing and, 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 and asking and, the question and right? like in 
instilling in you a state of mind. Well, no, it, it, I mean, I like mysterious movies that don't that are ambiguous. You know, that don't explain everything. That's different than some stuff that he does in this movie, where there's very much loose ends that don't lead anywhere and kind of. Um, Com- you know, like, it, disappointing. It, I, I, I'm not even saying it's disappointing. I'm just saying that it, that it, in terms of like a narrative structure, doesn't really. It's not really logical. I wonder if we're supposed to wonder, and I certainly did. How much of this movie is he high for? Uh, because they smoke <laughs> whatever they're smoking oh. when she gives her um, like whole confession is apparently pretty strong. That is um, a great point. I live Claire. in Oregon. It's it, that looks like pretty strong stuff. Um, like strong mm-hmm. shit. Yeah. <laughs> And then he see, immediately like leaves weed, after that. Yeah, yeah, and, and they don't look uh, very I didn't see high. any crystals on that weed, but go on. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, and they probably used like a baggie of oregano. I don't know, but Nicole Kidman, it was toasted as fuck. Um, so <laughs> he goes out in this cab and, you know, starts his whole like um, series of encounters. And at what point is he no longer high? He's clearly still high during um, the whole <laughs> encounter with like the grieving daughter of the guy who died because just like in terms of time he would be um and then he meets domino um he's probably still at least on a residual high during the whole thing with domino i'm just like trying to walk through it and think about how much of this like is there yeah how much of this is he still high for that's my favorite interpretation is that the whole thing is a hallucination <laughs> from some really crazy Nicole Kidman weed I mean look at her acting job that explains the acting job <laughs> that explains the spazzing out that explains everything that doesn't make sense thank you Claire well I by the way this is our 420 episode oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. um, you got him. but I yeah I mean, I think that to the point of like whether Nicole Kidman's acting is good or not or if she's like overdoing it because like no one's that kind of whimsical or whatever when high. But I think that the way that she talks, even when she's dancing with the Hungarian guy, is very like evocative of well, just kind of this, there. this. Yes, I know. Well, I mean, there are substances always motivating her kind of weird speech, but I think that it's supposed to kind of seduce you into this kind of soft dreamlike hypnosis. I mean, I think stylistically, if we're to believe that Stanley Kubrick took 95 shots of every line and those are the ones that he picked, and you know, I think there has to be a reason. Yeah, I guess. The best thing you've said that explains that is that, you know, their desires are kind of like your dreams. And so that's why you'd make it a dream statey kind of feeling. Because it really doesn't feel that dreamy, except for those oh, weird, I, a little. I disagree. Oh, I think little, it's so dreamlike. Um, I disagree. Yeah. Logical parts there that you're are, talking about. There's a significant use of dissolves. There's dissolves all yeah, over this movie. It's that very slow he dissolves. Very, very, very soft lighting. But yeah. the, the, the dissolves are all about literally like the passages of time. Because you know, like there's so much thinking in this movie. It's like he's just like, all right, if we're gonna, if I'm gonna show someone driving somewhere, I'm gonna show it dissolve five times so that you feel like you fucking drove there. I feel like it's it's a utilitarian function. And he uses Dissolve See, a lot I, in this I, film, doesn't he? He uses Dissolve a lot, but I disagree. I mean, because there are just as many points in the movie where they portray a passage of time through a hard cut. I think that Dissolves, definitely the the use of them and the soft lighting. If you notice, the movie is actually quite grainy. I don't know what you guys watched it on. I watched it on my TV on Blu-ray and because there was a lot of natural lighting and they had to actually push the film a couple stops. I saw it like on the scenes when he's walking outside on the streets. I like just that assumed looks, that was 1996 quality of film. Well, it was... God, but so much of it... Let's just let's just all say, it is so timeless though. Like the, the look, for it to be almost 20 years old now, it was shot in 96, actually more than 20 years ago. It looks beautiful. It's oh, so like glowy so I, I and I actually, 
at the end <laughs> when they're in the toy store, <laughs> I actually thought that I was like, oh, this movie's 20 years old. I was like, but in terms of the way that it, uh, sort of production quality, let's say, I was I actually, was. I was like, oh, I, I didn't think it was that old. I was thinking like, you know, maybe like the early knots, but I was thinking like, you know, 2005, 2007. And I was like, no, wait, this is still a 90s film. It was shot See, in like I'm, 97, I'm 98. I'm an old soul. This is the standard for what looks good to me. Like CGI shit in Black Panther. That's what looks like shit to oh, me. There's some CGI in that fucking insane. orgy scene, dude. Well, only if you watch the only if you watch <laughs> then, the censored version. And I think that uh, Tom Cruise is on a green screen in the cab. Wait, we, no, we, we can watch no, it's, it's rear, it's rear version. projection. It's, it's rear projection. Uh, there's a version of the movie that came out in theaters where they actually superimposed more CGI hooded figures that obscured the actual like oh, I uh, penetration. That's the one that was on Netflix. There's oh, that's what I saw. I think. That's, oh no! Oh, you, you saw the shitty one, man. I Fuck did. It. I got that. I got that. I that. Maybe that's why I was like, man, one. this is not nearly as titillating as I remember. Because I was like, <laughs> man, these are like super boring. I mean, this is like, like reading like Rolling Stone or something. Like, okay, okay, maybe I, mean, I would have been like way more into it. Yeah, if I we got to get another copy. No, of that. Uh, okay. well, okay. I was on Netflix actually too. I, I actually don't think that the orgy is meant to be no, erotic I, or titillating. That's probably right. If you look at the scene. Uh, and, you know, I know I'm focusing much on film form here, but I think it's, this is Kubrick. Like, he's the man. Uh, but <laughs> in the scene where, you know, the, the famous orgy scene at the beginning when we have all those women with their cloaks on and then they take off their cloaks and they're naked, the lighting is directly top-down lighting. Like, there are all these, like, really ugly shadows under the women's boobs. I mean, these women are gorgeous. They're, like, flawless. But I think they're shot in a way that doesn't actually make them look that appealing. Like, if you, like, that's certainly like not objects a, on display. It's right, exactly, spotlight. exactly. There's, like, a, uh, and I think this is more to the sociological reading, is that they are commodities, you know, and they're, and they're, and it's not meant to be erotic. It's meant to be that, like, look, these people are being objects exploited. that are consumed, but, like, the case of 25-year-old whiskey or whatever. Or, yeah, the case of 25-year-old, or the things that you buy during Christmas, and this is a Christmas. It takes place during Christmas. It's a Christmas story. <laughs> it is. It's a Christmas movie. I think you're you're right that they're framed as uh, commodities, but uh, like given the you know sociological context of that, I don't see how that precludes it being erotic because a lot of our eroticization has to do with treating people, especially women, That's as right. commodities. Yeah. So the interesting well, I, I thing would, is, I would, I would, is okay. So I would. So, sorry. Go ahead. No. Yeah. So I was going to say it's. It, I'm glad that Claire brought that up because I think it. It isn't that it's not erotic. So many of the people. People that reviewed this film when it first came out were disappointed because they thought it was going to be hot and sexy and steamy, which means that they're projecting their own expectations of what the fantasy is, right? That uh, that erotic and hot and steamy is like, you know, the lighting is beautiful and they don't, uh, sex scenes are, you know, they've got this particular type of music in the background and there's a To be fair, a there was a, a very misleading trailer. It was, it was yeah, yeah, marketed yeah, yeah. that way, but, Austin. And yeah. I think yeah, what's I mean, interesting I, is that- Fuck, what fuck this, the marketing team. What, what, yeah, right. That's how they made their money back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 165 million at the box office. Get asses and seats. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but but what this film does is it subverts that because it kind of confounds the quote unquote male fantasy again by making it just pure sex. And I think the the dance with the Hungarian is really interesting because he's talking about, you know, that why did women used to get married? It was so they could lose their virginity, so that they could do the thing that they actually wanted to do. So there was like this law or this symbolic order that was preventing people from actually um, living their fantasies. And so people have to go through the law in order to be justified to do it. But again, that's all through the sort of male perspective, right? I don't want to say the male gaze. A lot of people talk about the male gaze. That's not what Lacan meant when he's talking about the male gaze. 
gaze. It's not just that it's filtered through the kind of a uh, dude's desire. That's not quite what it is. It's it's a little bit more um, reference self-referential. But the point is, is that is that he's kind of exploring this idea that oh no, you can just do what you want. You can just purely quote unquote fuck right, and you don't have to have these fantasies that condition the the romance or the symbolic. You don't have to have those things that condition your desire to just libidinally fuck. And I think that's kind of something that you see that's on display in the weird orgiastic rituals is all that other stuff is stripped down. And this is just pure fuck. I, I, yeah, so, I don't so, understand that at all. I mean, the, the orgy, it seems, is the very opposite of that. It's There's so much ritual and I guess I'm just going to keep saying ritual over and over, <laughs> but they they take what could just be fucking. It could just be a swingers party, right? But they take that swingers party and they put layer upon layer of like pseudo religion on it and like costumes and myth and like all of I these think that's other like things. The, that's, that's, the, that's the sort of uh, projection of like the Illuminati and these sort of groups that you kind of, you would put religious ritual onto something that's that's naughty in, in order to make it feel more legitimate. Yeah, and no, I totally agree with that. I just, I'm saying I don't think that that orgy is a good example of everything being stripped away except for like pure fucking. Well, in, in the pure mm. Lacanian so wanna... sense, nothing can escape the symbolic order, right? So even, even the kind of pure fucking would still still have a different form of symbolic order. But that's kind of the point, is that it's just subverting one symbolic order for another symbolic order, but it's guised in this idea of pure, like, animality, which psychoanalysis would say doesn't actually exist. There's no such thing as, like, the pure animality, even that's even if that's what you're striving to do. Does that make sense? So I just want to clarify what I meant by it not being erotic. I guess, like, so you're right, Claire, like, if you watch a porno, the women are, the women are definitely being commodified, but there's, like, you know, just the way that they're presented is to, like, optimize their, uh, you know, their sexuality or their beauty, whereas I think that this movie almost goes out of its way not to kind of make them pornographic. I mean, despite them being beautiful, they are not lit like they would be in a porno, which, you know, the primary reason to watch is to get off. And that 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 wide shot of of the orgy, you know, it's all wide shots. There's no close-ups. And to me, the steamiest part of the whole movie is when Nicole Kidman's just sitting there in the mirror, you know, and there's that... The, the, That's that, right. That, the, the bump, bump, you know, bump. Yeah, and like, and then they cut right before, you know, they're about to do it. You know, See, I, I, I don't, I don't part too. That to me, that's the the, the scene that's shot the most like your Gorgeous, standard ero erotic like glowy, psychosexual. Yeah, yeah but movie. she is like looking in the mirror, and I don't think she's happy with her reflection. I think that's why that's what we see like a kind of dissatisfaction before it cuts. Oh, I didn't see that. I can well, almost oh, feel yeah, yeah. Austin well, like chomping at the bit to say something about the mirror stage. So like, go, <laughs> go, Austin. <laughs> oh god. Let me just. I want to talk about the. Let me let, let me just bring up two more things, and then we're gonna move on. One thing I want to bring up more to this. Uh, making it a dreamscape. I noticed that this time watching like the moving camera and the steady cam shots are wobbly. Well, they're not wobbly, but the, we see not only in like the extravagantly wealthy areas, we see much more of a moving camera, but also I think in the scenes that are more have the softer lighting, have the kind of, you know, questionable reality, whereas the shots like in Domino's apartment are static that we're meant to believe that perhaps these are like the real scenes. Um, that's the only thing I wanted to bring up here. The other thing I wanted to bring up uh, which maybe seems a little obvious, but more to the idea of uh, this movie being almost like to be crass about it, like a wet dream. You know, it's like 
sex, similar to what Austin said in the Videodrome podcast, sex is just dripping through this movie, even when there aren't any naked people. Everybody is fucking each other. So obviously everyone wants to fuck uh, Tom Cruise. There's Domino. Alan Cummings' character is yeah. very, <laughs> is hitting on him. Mrs. Nathanson. And one part that I found particularly subtle is uh, when after the orgy, Tom Cruise is looking for his friend Nick Nightingale and he goes to the cafe and he asks the waitress, do you know Nick Nightingale? And she's like, oh yeah. And she says, <laughs> oh yeah. But not only that, she knows, hotel. she knows where he's staying. <laughs> yeah. That suggests they oh, probably sure. have had an affair or they fucked or something sure. like that. So there's just sex dripping <laughs> through everything here, you know? And like, that's, and even, even that, that's Sydney kind Pollack of the, is like, oh, and Nick is back in Seattle probably fucking Mrs. Nick. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sydney Pollack's so good. All right, I want to move on to the sociological reading. So this essay, Introducing Sociology by Tim Creeder, was a big influence on me and, and is very much influences the way I read this film because I think he did such a wonderful job. But I think that to summarize his argument is that basically we're all whores. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of whores in this movie, a lot of prostitutes. And I think that the point that Creeder is trying to make about this movie is that we're all someone's whore. So go on. Okay. So first of all, the reason <laughs> yeah. why the essay is called Introducing Sociology is because in Domino's apartment, when uh, Tom Cruise takes the call from his wife, we see on her bookshelf, there's mm -hmm. a book called Introducing Sociology. So now if we, if we believe all the myths that Stanley Kubrick was an ultra perfectionist and, you know, had like so much control over every detail, then we, I think we should perhaps believe that everything is deliberate. So to Creeder, he suggests that this book and in context of the film suggests that we should look as prostitution as the basic defining transaction of our society. So um, let me just read a couple things that he said. Uh, Alice's obvious resentment of her husband, which she only expresses when she's dreaming or drugged, is motivated by her unconscious recognition that she is a kept woman. We know Bill's supporting her, her art gallery having gone broke. She tells Savas that she's looking for a job, but we don't see her looking. Mostly, we see her being looked at. Alice's role as a voyeuristic object is defined by her first breathtaking appearance and her first online screen, which is, how do I look? Everyone she encounters the first 15 minutes is constantly complimenting her appearance. He goes on to say, being beautiful is Alice's job, as much as it is for Call Girl Mandy or the hooker Domino. Uh, during the quotidian Life of the Harfords montage, in which her husband examines patients at the office, we only see Alice tending to her toilet, brushing her daughter's hair, hooking a brazier, applying deodorant. Hers is the daytime regimen of a courtesan devoted to the rigorous maintenance of her looks. She's associated more than any other character with mirrors. Her expression in the mirror as she watches her husband making love to her, which is the thing we're just talking, the film's most iconic image, begins as bemusement, giving way to fondness and arousal, but in the last seconds before the fade-out, it becomes something more ambiguous, distracted and self-conscious. This is her moment of clearest self-recognition, an uncomfortable glimpse mm -hmm. of what she really is. So what is what that she really is? Well, to Creter, Alice's status, real status, is unmistakably suggested as the wife as prostitute. She's identified with the hooker Mandy through a series of parallels. They're both tall redheads with a taste for numbing drugs. We see them both in bathrooms, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Alice is also associated with the street Walker Domino by the purple of the sheets and Domino's dress and their conspicuous dressing table mirrors. Um, oh, yeah. So basically, the similarities between them are more revealing when read the other way, as insinuating that Alice is just another higher class hooker. When we see her later in the film, in a toy store, she's surrounded by shelves full of stuffed tigers, which is the exact same stuffed tiger that is in Domino's bed. Even in this scene, mm -hmm. as she delivers the film's ostensible moral, Alice is visually linked to the doomed hooker. So one thing that I think... Well, let me just stop and say, I've got well, chills, hard nipples, and I'm very excited right now. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Mind blown. So, so let me just one, one of my criticisms of... 
uh, Creter's essay is that I don't think it's only women as prostitutes because I think there's a very important line at the beginning where Tom Cruise, basically, he is Victor Ziegler's whore. Yeah. When they when they enter the party at the beginning, Nicole Kidman asks him, how, uh, you know, like, how did you get invited to this? And he says, this is what you get for making house calls. <laughs> uh, you know, he's basically yeah. just he saying, like, house I, calls. He knows yeah. nobody. Yeah, he it's like, he's like, a, he's like a prostitute. He just shows up. I've got to show my face. He shows up, services the elite, and he gets paid by being invited to mingle with the uh, societal elite. Yet he'll never be one of the big, the big crowd, the big dogs. He can't, right. He's not allowed into the big party. And so I think that uh, a big theme here is that sex is very much an economic transaction. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the gist of Creter's argument, which uh, which I, I found to be pretty interesting. What do you guys think about that? So is the only one not a whore in the movies, uh, uh, Pollock? Oh, no, he's a whore. Uh, well, he's got. Right? Oh, he's a whore for sure. Maybe he's a whore to the system. Oh, I guess he's running. I mean, isn't he? Who's he a whore to? He's a well, whore to those like, elites because he's talking about them like they're powerful yeah, people yeah. and you don't want to know who they like, are. Right, and he feels like he's threatened and he's trying to protect himself and getting this guy followed just so he can save his ass. And he's like, I got in big trouble because of Nick. I, I put, I, I'm the one who vouched for that guy. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the emphasis of class golfs. It's like yeah. as... As Tom Cruise is getting closer to the orgy scene, it's almost as if he's like going on this odyssey and it's almost sort of like a survey of the sociological landscape or the class landscape. So when he goes to Domino's house, yeah, he's uh, like, wow, this is how real people live. It he's looks like, he's like, like it's that. He says, it's cozy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking the camera might not be moving like sweepingly because there's not a lot as Exa much space maybe. I mean, yeah, that's probably a practical reason. But it's a little more but, focused because like, the but lights I, but, are always but, but, glowy and kind of soft and in her apartment, it's the Christmas tree lights. is like crisp. Yeah, the Christmas lights. But the Christmas lights are always glowy. Like at the big house, at uh, Ziegler's house, it's like super soft. There it's firm. It's hard. It's in focus. Everything's a little more real. There's like the, the breakfast in the pan, all that kind of stuff. I, the only reason I know that it's movie. like a, a really common uh, thing to love, but you know, as a brand new viewer, I really loved it. The um, the repetition of "I'm a doctor," um, yeah, <laughs> and that seems to be a really important kind of class cue. Is he almost always uses that with people who presumably are have He's like bad. a lower socioeconomic status than him? So like talking right. to a concierge or a waiter mm. or um, like a costume shop owner. I don't remember. It's his way of get of granting himself access, right? Everyone like trust it's like, it's, it's it's like a badge of trustworthiness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's his little password. He's like, it's okay, I'm a doctor. And he uses that even in a lie later, right? So uh Bill's first line in the movie is, Have you seen my wallet? And uh um, <laughs> oh. And I, uh, I noticed that. that. I didn't think I didn't notice that. And so, that's his little his little pass. Another thing I've read that I don't know if I buy this, but so there Kubrick has this tradition of like kind of deliberate names. So uh Jack D. Ripper in oh. what is that in Doctor Strange Love? And then uh Private Joker <laughs> in uh and this one is Dr. Bill, as if like Bill like Dollar Bill. Oh, that's like, interesting. Um okay. I used to have a dream where every time I opened my wallet, it had like five hundred dollars cash in it. But then instead oh, of just like spending it, what I would do is just sit there and keep accumulating it by closing it and opening it and closing it and opening it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Money dream. If you I don't think Marx I don't think Marx would approve of that. Yeah. yeah. I don't think Marx would approve of that Austin. Would it like magically sprout the other half? I felt I, so bad for that cab driver. I know. What a dick, right? Uh, and no. that's I think I, 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 move. I was such a dick move. I also I was, think that's it, it reminded me of like those bum war things. Remember where guys would be like here yeah. to a homeless person Bum and they'd give them money to, mm. to make them fight or whatever. I was, I was walking down the street here in Sydney and there were these fucking guys and I almost said something and I wish I would have, but there were like six of them and they were huge Aussie fuckers. 
But um, they were they were making this homeless guy do push-ups for money. And I was like, that's fucking sick, man. Like I, this idea that you can exploit somebody just because you are in a, a, a level of material comfort that's higher. It makes yeah. me so I didn't even think about yeah, that. But, like but, him but, with the taxi cab driver is just like but, prostitution, right? I mean, you say that's disgusting, but I think what this movie is trying to say is that we all do yeah, it. it. That's literally how society functions. Like, yeah, this is why you know, philosophers like that, that, hate that's themselves a and become depressed that's a, in life. That, like that's a, that's a microcosm, but literally, like that symbolic thing of "Hey, I pay you, and you humiliate yourself" is literally the fabric of society. Right. Yeah. Can, can we attempt the chant at some point today too? No. I think he's saying Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? Well, I think that's maybe the that's the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Eyes wide shut. We're done. Mic drop. La okay. One more thing I want to do about uh, the way the women are portrayed is I want to talk about the daughter Helena and yeah. and the daughter of the uh, of Milich, the costume mm -hmm. guy. So uh, one of the things that I find interesting is that uh, a couple times uh, the daughter of Milich is framed uh, with the mannequins in the background as if this, you know, want more of like an objectification of women thing. Um, so, uh, Creter also points out this thing. First of all, uh, Nicole Kidman's character is always grooming her daughter, Helena, and her name Helena, Creter points out, is named after the most beautiful woman in history, as if she's grooming her to become a high-ticket item like herself. Uh, so not only do we see during that montage that I mentioned earlier, we see Helena's hair being brushed, learning to groom herself. But then in another interesting part that I found kind of amusing was Creter claims that it's relevant that when Nicole Kidman's character is helping Helena with her homework, the math problem that she's doing is teaching Helena how to discern which male or which boy has more money. Mm -hmm. oh, I didn't even think about that oh, either. Oh, well, I didn't catch that. <laughs> that is so interesting. Yeah, it, what, because what is the story? Yeah, it's Billy has five dollars, and then J Josh has two fifty. Who has more money? Is the, is, is oh, the wow. is the problem that that she's teaching her daughter? <laughs> That's my um, favorite point of Krieger so far. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't you don't buy this uh, uh, in general the uh, Krieger argument, the horror thing? Yeah. No, no, no. I think it's interesting. I'm 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 absorbing it. All right, next thing. Let's talk about the title. What does it mean? Oh uh, wait, we we barely talked about uh, the two girls. I feel like there's a lot more to say on. Oh, that. Okay, yeah, please, please. Yeah, I was really intrigued um, by the portrayal of um, I think Milich's daughter. Milich's daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How she? I mean, she's obviously underage, like very much so, and she's obviously being like you know sold into prostitution by her father. Um, and I think we are kind of conditioned to expect um, someone who's very obviously kind of being sold into child sex slavery on film to be um, like, you know, scared uh, or vulnerable. And instead, like both her body language and um, like the, her, like the things that I don't, I don't know if she says anything, but if she does, like the the whole way she conducts herself is the very opposite of that, as though she's in on this, um, which was, There's, I think, and, disturbing, but maybe intentionally disturbing. And I wanted to know what other people thought, of, like what is what is Kubrick trying to do there? I mean, he was the guy who gave us Lolita, so. <laughs> well, really, Nabokov did, but yeah. There's there's also, so like, there's a line when she whispers in his ear, which uh -huh. I remember many years ago, I, and then I didn't do this this viewing, but I, I I put on subtitles to see if we could discern what it was that she was saying. Oh, I was and wondering she says, you, yeah. sh you should get a cloak lined with ermine 
So she's effectively like Whoa. giving him a clue as to what to wear. This is only in the subtitles because you really can't hear. It's not even mixed to be able to hear at all, um, which makes me wonder, like, did she know what this party is? And it also seems like Millich is like, oh, cloak, a mask, and this. Like, it sounds like you're going to that thing. I don't know if that was in there too. But anyway, but, but, but when she is suggesting what he should get, he doesn't end up getting that. He doesn't get ermine at all on his thing. But I'm just curious, like, what, what did that mean? I think that uh, one of the things about this movie, and I think this more kind of comes to the ambiguity in the dreamscape, is that we're constantly questioning who is at this party, right? I, I think oh, yeah. that even the mask thing and the dream that Nicole Kidman says, I don't think we're meant to literally think that Nicole Kidman was, was at there, the party. Right, right. But I think that there are like hints at that. But um, it could and, also be read as like, uh, there's a world out there that I'm not, that I don't belong to. I'd like to pretend like I could be there. And and he's he gets that feeling of being able to get there, but then it's quickly pulled back. And then that, that plays into the whole class structure thing. And then again, you're like, who is at that party? Who's important? But it's a little off off topic from like who what's what like to Claire's question, like what's up with Millich's daughter? Well, and to, to, to me, Millich's daughter, her whole really sad story, it's kind of plays into the whole class uh theme of the thing. It's like this is the other side, and you know, right. and like, oh, my daughter's, you know, learning how to brush and stuff. I've in our penthouse apartment, and you know, but but to, to the, the the whole this scene is the is the to me the biggest evidence of it being some sort of dreamy thing because of, of the fact because he Tom Cruise even says like wait a minute yesterday you were you were super pissed off about uh, and we're gonna call the cops on these guys the day you're in bed with them you know literally selling your daughter into sex slavery like like him just asking that it's like like the fact that Cooper you know has them ask that question and stuff it, it, it's very much like wait yeah what the fuck and it, 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 either either the answer is that guy's just really crazy and weird uh, this whole situation is or it's supposed to evoke what is this kind of dreamscapey thing or right. is it and again, is it matter? Matter? transactions the again that he encounters um you know they they burst in, in the room with the uh the girl and the two men um they're wearing a lot of makeup on their faces and um there's yeah, things the men are right yeah the men are the men are not the girl um and there's probably other things we could pull out of that but um it seems to be mirroring the idea of wearing masks um because when we see them the second time when they've done the kind of trans the rather than the like risque. They were invited there. It's a secret. They're wearing a mask by having this makeup on. The second time, they have much better posture. They're not hiding. They're not wearing any makeup. Business suits. Yeah, yeah. because it was transactional. And mm. um, so that implies to me that the makeup, it wasn't a way that they got off. Oh, it so wasn't cool. like a sexual kink. It was it was really just supposed to be a part of their mask. I like that's that. so interesting. Yeah, because that's, that's what I was, yeah. I was wondering. Is the shift from the first encounter to the second encounter simply that in, in the second encounter, Millich was overseeing it. And so he was okay with it. Whereas before they were sneaking and he didn't like that because then it was circumventing his authority. And so that's kind of maybe why he allowed it to, to take place because he is accustomed to selling his daughter on uh, uh, making 200 body. extra dollars. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I also, to my point about one doubling and two, the sociological thing as it applies to wow. women is uh, one, the doubling is you could say that you could uh, compare Helena with uh, Milich's daughter and uh, you could argue that if Helena is being groomed to be a high dollar prostitute it's mm. just that Millich being uh, of a lower class is just having his daughter be a put, cheaper prostitute. You should put a link to that article in the show notes because that sounds really fucking cool. Um, dire, yeah, uh, it, but cool. 
uh, yeah, there's a website called the Kubrick site, which is amazing. It's and people, like the, people are asking for like, yeah, links to all the resources and articles and stuff. So if we'll get those. Yeah, we'll so get those it's to called you guys. the Kubrick site and it is the best website that has just a collection of all these scholarly articles. Um, and uh, I devoured that whole site when I was in high school. It's been around for forever. <laughs> okay. Um, Anyway, hey, I, so can I, we? I know I know we're running way long, but real quick, can we talk about that final scene and particularly Nicole Kidman's yes. final words? Is that yes, sir. fuck? Yeah, I mean, okay. So obviously, this is my one trick pony for this episode uh, is talking about Lacan. <laughs> Lacan. Um, <laughs> but I think there's something so interesting again. Uh, so generally, when Nicole Kidman is talking about sex, uh, when she's talking about it, she says uh, she talks about it in terms of making love. Right. Uh, except for when she talks about her dream where everybody around her in the dream was fucking. And then when she says and then she was fucking. And then at the end, she uses the word fuck. That's the thing that they need to do ASAP. And I 100 percent agree with Zizek's interpretation on this from I think it's what is it? A pervert's guide to cinema that he did where he talks about this, where he says it's almost as, and real. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's almost as though at that point, um, you know, he's talking about all this romantic stuff, like let's be together forever and, and all of these cliches, which is one form of a type of fantasy, right? The marriage fantasy that uh, you have this monogamous relationship that lasts and that everything's good and it lasts forever. That's like the typical thing that you get in romantic movies where, um, and so you think, okay, so how are they going to reconcile? Oh, they're going to make love and reconcile. And she says, no, what we need to do is we need to fuck. And Zizek's interpretation of this is that the reason that she says as soon as possible, we just need to fuck is because at that point, the real has infected both of them. The sort of pleasure that exudes their ability to exist in the previous symbolic order or according to the old codes or whatever has been shattered, right? He's a shell of what he was before. She's dealing with this traumatic event as well that kind of was initiated really from the mirror stage, which we didn't get into, but when she's looking at herself in the mirror, but then when she starts to realize herself as this this desiring object and not just an object of desire. Um, and then what happens is in order to, not in order to like get to the real, but in order to silence the real, they need to just simply fuck. And that's what it is because that will squash this excessive need to transcend the symbolic order and it will bring them back into maybe a new type of symbolic arrangement. But nevertheless, she doesn't use like flowery language, which would just be another form of a fantasy, but rather she uses like the brute we just need to get down to it and fuck. And I think that's right, so, interesting. It's the suppression of the real, not like getting to the real. Right. So that's what they mean by eyes wide shut. I think so. Closing I yourself so. off from the real. I think so. Exactly. Um, because you can't look at the real. If you look at the real, it's like looking into God. You know, you can't look at God. You have to look at the burning bush, you know, um, and anyone who stares into the face of God will die. That's the real. You can't look at the real. The real in the cabin in the woods is the monsters at the end coming and destroying everything. That's unfettered pleasure. You can't do that. It destroys you. So you're saying being aware that you should shut that out or being aware <laughs> that it's not... Well, I, I, I think that there's a number of ways it can be read. One is the one that Austin is saying. Another one is just talking about the fact that, you know, they just kind of exposed this uh, this hierarchy of power that is extremely abusive. But in, in, in the end, they can't do anything about it. So they're just like, thank God we're alive. Let's just forget about it. Our eyes are firmly shut. I, I think, uh, uh, and I'm going to bring in a philosopher here. So uh, we did a video uh, in December about... Uh, 
about advertising with Deadpool 2. And we talked about a philosopher named Peter Sloterdijk. And he has this idea of enlightened false consciousness. And the idea being that, like, you know, whereas Marx or someone would talk about false consciousness and how, like, the the elite, uh, you know, uh, imbue the uh, lower classes with uh, these false ideas to make them subservient. Uh, Sloterdijk talks about enlightened false consciousness, which is knowing that we're getting fucked, but, you know, we're just like, <laughs> we're just like, it's okay. Being fucked is kind of comfortable, so we're just going to deal with it. Um, and so similarly, I think Happy that... Happy to be alive. <laughs> right. So I think there's kind of this enlightened false consciousness with that is like, we know we're getting fucked by the elite or that, you know, all of our desires are trickle down from this economic structure that, uh, you know, makes whores out of us all. But it's Christmas and we have our toys and our fuck toys. <laughs> so, so our eyes are firmly and deliberately shut for sake of comfort. See, for mm. me, it, the the title kind of comes from the poster of the movie in the scene in front of the mirror. It's like, it's more about the relate the interrelationships, like the seat, like you're, you're, you, even, even though you're wide open to your people you love, you're, you're still shut off. It, like you have this kind of, uh, like, there's a wall between, you know, between yeah. what you know and what they do. You have mm. to hide your desires in order right. to like, you know, have any kind of a real relationship because I think that once again, we're all kind of slaves to our desires that definitely don't, if we if we just gave in to them or, uh, all the time, then it would not be conducive for a healthy relationship. Right. Uh, I, I like that. Um, and speaking of his, uh, the fantasy or like, like his, what he's become so obsessed about, kind of like the inciting moment is that fight and then he's, kind of envisioning this sex scene with the with our naval officer. You know, Jared and I had been laughing for a while about what was that day like, the shoot day like for that naval officer who just had to like make love to Nicole Kidman. <laughs> and if it was a 400-day shooting schedule, it must have been at least, you know, an eight-hour shooting day. Turns out it's six full days. Six full days of a man getting paid <laughs> to, to have sex with, with Nicole, Nicole Kidman. Kidman. <laughs> make it, yeah. And uh, it, we read that, uh, yeah, Tom Cruise was not allowed at all in the room, was not allowed on the set for those days just so his mind can go crazy. This is his wife being, you know, fondled for six full days by this naval officer. <laughs> oh, wow. God, so it was, it was, it was method directing. Dick. Yeah, Kubrick was, it seems like he was a complete dick. I mean, he, he even, it was like psychoanalysis hey, he made the good time. movies, God damn it. He, he made, made great he made, films. He made good movies. And if I may say, I mean, these people like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, they are the biggest stars in the world getting paid tens of millions of dollars to do this movie. They're never in a situation in their lives. To so do this where they, movie? I don't know about that. You, typically, it was like a $20 million a, a movie was their was his paid fee, their rate. But this was relatively perhaps. But they're doing all right. They're doing all right. Yeah. Point is, is that they live lives in which they're never challenged with anything. No one ever tells them no. They're always, uh, you know, affirmed at every corner of the way. God forbid these people have an asshole boss for once in their lives. See, I mean, come I on. 400 days. I, I love this way. I love shit. it too. I, Fuck I, these I had, people. I mean, <laughs> they may get in $20 million to, you know, big fucking whoop. You yeah. know, they have to, they, they have to do stuff they don't like. Um, Fuck them. This movie was bad for everyone everyone involved, dude. I mean, fine, but Tom Cruise up and I mean, when it comes to like, you know, we live in the era now where like there is not a single star, including Jennifer Lawrence, who can open a movie just based on star power. But the last person to uh, actually have that power was Tom Cruise. And that only ended like less than seven years ago. It was the jumping I mean, on the sofa with, at Oprah's where people <laughs> started to kind of go, eh, I don't know. Oh, this man, guy's a little, who gives a fuck? Who gives a fuck he jumps actor. on a sofa? That motherfucker can act. <laughs> he was happy, man. He was in a relationship with a girl Let, half his Les age. Grossman? Whatever, man. Let the Les guy Grossman have a little best. expression of joy. I mean, I don't know. And then in 1999, I mean, they filmed this in 96, but 99, man, you got Magnolia. And you got this fucking movie. 
Oh shit! Yeah, okay. that was just, what I, a good I kind Tom of Cruise year. As, um, like it, it was people rightly or wrongly criticized his ability to act so much after this movie that um, like he wasn't he like he didn't get to show like the the Tom Cruise like flashing the smiles, make everyone right. in the theater drop right. their panties kind of deal. That like <laughs> if not maybe it's hyperbole to say it ruined his career, but it definitely changed the image of like Tom Cruise as an actor. Yeah, they got a lot of shit for this. But movie. Kubrick, but see Kubrick didn't want didn't want him to use any of that charm, any of that stuff. He was like, it, he just like, he was trying to get other takes to make sure that it, that wasn't the case, that wasn't presented. From what I could read, like, these articles that I was reading last night is that Tom Cruise was trying his hardest to please his master, to do whatever it took. And in mm. case, it's also meta now that we're thinking, meta, you should be bringing this up, Jared. <laughs> uh, but it was like, he was trying so hard to, to please his master. Whatever it did, whatever it took, he put himself totally yeah. in his hands. You didn't see that. And But then he, it's funny that Kubrick picks some of the most boring takes ever, I imagine. If he's got 95 takes of every shot, these, you know, Bill is a pretty boring character. He's pretty just like aimless and wandering around. Mm. There's not a lot of, I think it's a symbolic, sociological bird's eye view. It's not a character yeah, story. I think that's right. I think that's right. But I don't know, man. We're here celebrating Tom Cruise in this great movie and <laughs> I, yeah, I think he got, they got a lot of shit for it because it wasn't all it was hyped up to be. But yeah, it's so still much hype. Masterpiece. I mean, yeah, I Stanley think. Kubrick died. Last movie ever, sexiest movie ever, like starring the two biggest stars sexiest in stars in the world. Of course, there's going to be ridiculous hype that went way over budget. The studio's going to want to like pimp the shit out of the idea that there are naked stars in this movie. They, you know, market it as the most sensual movie ever made. It ends up not being that. So of course, people are going to react negatively to it. I'm but, just saying that you know he, his reputation at the time. Uh, 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 Tom Cruise is like, God damn it! I probably I wish I was in fucking Full Metal Jacket. You know, uh, I see what you're saying. You're just saying like, 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 like people. He, he, Eyes Wide Shut is not considered the accessible mainstream classic that some of uh, his other Kubrick's films. other movies, while still being fucking weird as hell, are. But this is like a complete yeah, Kubrick I mean, masterpiece. Uh, I wonder, he, like, got, 20, he got to be in the Kubrick canon. I mean, yeah, yeah I guess that's, that's, that's something. Great. I that's guess some, that's worth it. Because look, he's got all the other movies under his belt. Like he's got all the other ones. But I, I guess oh, yeah. like you know, I don't know. Like he he got to just fucking be speculating. Do it. He got to experience the, the the process. And also like I don't think Cruz is a director. Is he he's directing? No, he's producer. But he's like, he's so in love. I mean, he just must have been like, I get to spend this much time with a master learning it all. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not, I have oh, no man. doubt he had a lot of fun making the movie. Yeah, you just think that might have been disappointed by it. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, such an interesting movie. I I feel like, again, this is one of those films that, that suffers because of particular expectations that were not met. But I think I don't. I don't believe. Years I mean, later, like, like we're twenty years later. We're not, we have none of the hype built up. It's more we're looking at the movie as a movie, and I love the movie like with you guys. But still, like like I said, it's not. In fact, let's go. What's everyone's top three Kubricks? Is this the end of the episode? Oh, Can we say that? Yeah, uh, I think what, I think what, Clarence what, to go, so she should go first, right? What's your top three favorite Kubricks? Uh, the Shining. Um, Number one. Uh, Lolita. Whoa. Um, and those are the only two I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> what? You've never seen 2001? Like, I thought you said you had seen A Clockwork Orange. I No, I've read A Clockwork Orange. Okay. Mm. Austin, what about you? My, my favorite Kubrick film is actually The Killing. Um, oh, so good. Oh, yeah. I fucking love. I actually really like black and white Kubrick almost more than color. So, but but I will. I mean, right now I'm just gonna say I love Eyes Wide Shut third, just because I can't stop thinking about it and I didn't sleep last night because of it. So I'll put it in third just because. But The Killing is my favorite, and then for number two, just because I feel like it's obligatory, 2001. See, when you said black and white, I thought you were going to say Pass the Glory because I think that movie has the best ending scene of all time. That might actually be my third favorite in real in real life, but because I'm obsessed right now with Eyes Wide Shut because, again, I couldn't sleep last night. I just but in it. Dream World. But in Dream <laughs> World, it's yeah. Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> Jacob? I think, God, 
It's too hard. Oh, it's too hard. <laughs> I love Barry Lyndon. I'd probably put that as number two. Oh, it's The Shining or 2001 as number one. And I guess they kind of go in that order. But Eyes Wide Shut's up there. I don't know, man. It's too hard. They're all so good. Yeah, I mean, for I me. I love Dr. Strange. I love all of them. Yeah. How could you pick between Dr. Strange, Love 2001, Clockwork Orange? Uh, I mean, for me, The Shining is not in, on I the like top. The Shining more Barry than Lyndon, Clockwork Barry Orange. Barry Lyndon, I, I know I know, Ryan's going to shit himself, but Barry Lyndon is, might be number one for me. I love uh, it. That's fucking insane. Oh, we didn't so, talk about that. That's so fucking insane. Like, you should say really quick. The, yeah. Now the three... Kubrick movies I've seen are not in anyone's top three and they're not the Kubrick movies I should have seen. Yeah, no one has said Eyes Wide Shut very uh, uh, I know, significantly. I, yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my, my number one's Full Metal Jacket, then The wow. Shining, and then probably Paths of Glory, and then with a close fourth, 2001. By the way, rest wow. in peace, uh, what is it, Lee Ermey? Or Arlie Ermey. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and just, and this isn't re related, but fucking Milos Forman is dead. Yeah, I know. That sucks. But you were, you were going to say, you said earlier Okay, yeah, yeah. About, one like, last thing. Uh, yeah, so, like something, something about this movie that I is uh, very Kubrick-esque is that it's like a movie that's cut in half. So Barry Lyndon is literally cut in half. It's the first half is the rise. The second right. half is the fall. There's even title cards. Uh, a Clockwork Orange. Everyone he meets in the beginning, so the homeless guy, um, the uh, homeless guys, his friends, yeah, the the home woman and, like, the guy in the wheelchair, uh, he meets them in the first half, abuses them, and then they abuse him in the second half. Uh, 2001 as the apes and then the future? Does that count? No, I don't think that one works. But I, So it's Barry Lyndon, Clockwork Orange, and then this one, Eyes Wide Shut. So there's leading up to the orgy, he meets the he meets Millich and his daughter, he meets Mrs. Nathanson, and he uh, meets Domino. And then in the second half, he calls Mrs. Nathanson again. He sees that Millich's daughter has become a, a real prostitute, and he goes to Domino's apartment and realizes she has HIV. So it's also cut down the and middle like that. And the other like prostitute, that. the one who dies, saves him. All right. Well, that's, that's all I've got today. I want to remind everybody that if you like what we do, consider supporting us on Wisecrack Plus on Patreon. So go to wisecrackplus.com. You can even join us as a guest on one of our podcasts. Last episode, we did Fargo, and we had our first Patreon podcast correspondent, Jonathan Ramirez. Uh, you also get access to the Wisecrack Discord server, which I'm currently arguing with people about The Last Jedi on. And you'll also get Wisecrack Edition extra podcasts and uh, lots of other cool things. So You've check us out. You've also got some merch. If you want merch, Jared's wearing our first ever Show Me the, the Meaning t-shirt. You can get that at wisecrack.store or the link is in the description. I'm wearing the hoodie, which you can also get. And uh, yeah, and where can we find each other on the internet, everybody? Well, you can find me on Facebook or YouTube at Ryan Shorts. I have a very good particular Ryan Short tomorrow called The Man Behind the Man Behind the Muppets. It's about the true <laughs> oh. story behind the Muppets. If you'd like to figure out what that is, then go check it out. Awesome. I will be tuning into that actually. Um, Ryan shorts can, are awesome. You can find me at you, uh, on Twitter Austin underscore Hayden H A Y D E N. I follow you now. Yeah, I do too. I get I do, you notifications I, all the time. I, I do. I, I do, and I regret it. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta be on Austin. I love podcast Austin. One day I hope to meet real Austin, but Twitter Austin. Man, what an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> hey, uh, shots fired. No, it's okay. Um, dun, 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 you know me. I'm dun, I'm, I'm a Zizekian in that I like this rich obscenity that gives more um, intimacy, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. Eyes wide shut. Jacob, can we find <laughs> yeah. you on the internet? You can find me at everything wisecrack or at Jacob Solomon for myself or anything that's wisecrack, youtube.com slash wisecrack, yep. at wisecrack, facebook.com slash wisecrack, edu. Fuck yeah. Cool. All right, well, that's it for today. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you, uh, Jacob, Austin, thanks. and Claire, and Ryan for joining us. Hell yeah, I love movies so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you, guys. And uh, thank you to the YouTubes for watching live. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you guys soon. Bye, everyone. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. 
California. Adios, everybody. Peace. Bye-bye. <laughs>